data, privacy. Privacy rights versus the public's right to know. Actually, machines are ruled by algorithm, which are made by humans who are ruled by emotion. Explores how the tension between First Amendment and privacy rights has developed within digital media in the modern age. Failing to safeguard young people and their privacy. Welcome to The Lockdown. I'm your host, Ray Heffer, and I'm here to help you fortify security in your personal life and lock down your private world with practical strategies. Let's emphasise practical. If you've seen the movie Enemy of the State, you'll remember Brill, who lives in a Faraday cage with his cat. Now that's the extreme and impractical side of privacy. This podcast is not about that. Here, we focus on the practical strategies that fit into your everyday lives without the need for a tinfoil hat. Now, today's episode is the first of my Friday Field Notes series, where we take a break from privacy and focus on cybersecurity. Now, as a field CISO, I meet with chief information security officers at Fortune 500 companies discussing and advising on ransomware defenses, security frameworks, instant response plans, advanced threat intelligence tools, and even privacy regulations. I've spent over 10 years as a cloud architect, designing highly scalable and secure cloud computing workloads during my time at Amazon Web Services and at VMware as a principal architect. Now, my very first security tool I ever deployed was Nmap. This was 23 years ago in 2000. I worked at an internet service provider where we hosted entire customer infrastructure environments. Now, back then, I started to discover other tools like John the Ripper for cracking passwords, Nessus for scanning vulnerabilities. Security was very different back then. We focused on protecting the perimeter, like a cage surrounding all of the servers, data, applications, all protected with a firewall, only allowing certain ports and protocols into that perimeter. Now, simply setting up defences at the perimeter is no longer enough. Cybersecurity threats have become far more sophisticated and the process of an attack is well planned and thought out. Which brings me on to today's Friday Field Notes topic, Zero Trust. We can define this as a framework or a guide for cybersecurity professionals as they strengthen their organization's defences. As privacy enthusiasts, I think you'll appreciate the sentiment behind it. Never trust, always verify. Now, there's been a lot of buzz around zero trust in the tech industry, and lately I've heard some inaccurate definitions of what zero trust means. Let's clear this up. It's become a bit of a hot topic that, unfortunately, is often misinterpreted or oversimplified. I've even heard some folks boil it down to mere segmentation. Now, the zero trust framework is really quite simple. Don't give anyone or anything implicit trust, regardless of where they are, or whether they're inside the network, what used to be considered your secure perimeter. Now, in privacy, you'll often hear me say that it's not a case of if our data will end up in a data breach, which will then be exposed for the world to see, but when our data ends up in a breach. Again, we don't want to give anyone or anything implicit trust. This is the foundation of this podcast. This is our approach to achieving better privacy. Now, zero trust follows the same principle – 
is not a case of if an intruder is on the system, but you must assume they already are. If you really want a secure environment, you have to try and break in yourself. Organisations do this all of the time with teams of hackers, known as red teams, that try and break into critical systems. I do this in my own home. I'll try and find a way in without my keys. I've got a Sparrow lockpick set and a few other tools at my disposal. If I can find a way in, so can an intruder. I'm just waiting for the day the local police department are driving past as I'm doing this. Anyway, before we dive deeper into Zero Trust, we should take several steps back and talk about how we got here in the first place. Remember I said about using Nmap back in the day, 23 years ago, but essentially what I was doing was scanning the network for open ports, like the open windows of a house that shouldn't be open. Now, gaining initial access into an environment is just the first step in a series of tactics, techniques and procedures. We call these TTPs, collectively known as the Cyber Kill Chain, which was developed by Lockheed Martin. It breaks things down into seven stages. First, we have reconnaissance. This is gathering intelligence, OSINT, that's open source intelligence, harvesting email addresses and so on. Much of this could actually come from data breaches that are already out there. Second, weaponization. This is the creation of malware to be used against the target. Third, we have delivery. We're going to now deliver the malware to the victim. This could be through a weaponized PDF or a phishing email like I talked about in the previous episode or perhaps just sending them a USB, which is why I always say please don't install random USB drives that you've found lying around. Number four is exploitation. So now we're exploiting the system. We're taking advantage of the vulnerabilities they've discovered. Five, installation. Now we're installing our malware. Rats, these remote access trojans. Command and control agents, which leads to number six, C2 or command and control. The attacker's command center. This is the command and control accessing the victim system or perhaps having access to hundreds of victims' environments. And then the final stage, stage seven, is actions on objectives. This is carrying out the attack. This could be the encryption and exfiltration of data as part of a ransomware attack, for example. So the cyber kill chain outlines this progression of a cyber attack in multiple stages. Understanding the kill chain is crucial. It allows us to anticipate and hopefully disrupt each stage of the attack. This is where our strategies and defences must be aimed, not just at preventing initial access, but breaking the chain at every possible link. Okay, so why is this important when talking about zero trust? Well, I mentioned TTPs, the tactics, the techniques and procedures an attacker uses. One such tactic is called living off the land. And this involves using existing tools and features of the victim's environment to carry out the attack. Because living off the land uses legitimate tools, protocols, mechanisms, they're less likely to be detected by conventional security measures that are typically looking for malware signatures or even just blocking ports. Let me explain. Traditional security defences that focus solely on the perimeter may allow RDP, that's Remote Desktop Protocol, often used by administrators to access servers on the network. So what's unusual then about an admin patching a server at two o'clock in the morning? Well, 20 years ago, that was me, on call, 
dealing with system outages and that kind of thing. So what if this is an attacker using RDP? It's already allowed. Perhaps they're connecting from the victim's compromised PC to a file server. Do traditional approaches to firewalling parts of the network detect that as unusual? I'd say no. This is where zero trust comes into play. Never trust, always verify. Let's say I'm that administrator again, rudely awakened at two o'clock in the morning to fix an issue with a server. Now you need to verify it's really me. This could be achieved with multi-factor authentication, for example, MFA. Perhaps in addition, the only way to connect to that file server is not only with my username, password and MFA token, but also my IT-issued laptop that has a client certificate that's also verified. This addresses a number of security risks that CISOs face every day. What if the inside threat here isn't a hacker wearing a black hoodie like Elliot from the TV show Mr. Robot, but a disgruntled employee? Let's say he knew he was about to get fired. Okay, so he gets fired and his account's been disabled. If we didn't implement zero trust, what's stopping him from using another account to access the system? Perhaps he's created a secret account to be used in the event he's fired. In fact, this is very common, where admins will have passwords for service accounts that have full access. But with zero trust, this is not possible, because as well as the user account being disabled and the MFA token being deactivated, now the certificate on his laptop was added to something called a Certificate Revocation List, or CRL, essentially saying not to trust this certificate any longer. On top of that, we've also separated duties. So the MFA tokens are issued by an entirely different team. The certificates are managed by a security team. So you can see this goes far beyond mere firewalling and segmentation between systems. We're preventing untrusted movement between systems that can talk to each other on legitimate ports with legitimate accounts and legitimate protocols. So zero trust really is about identity verification, real-time access control, and continuous monitoring of your network environment. Zero trust takes the stance that trust itself is a vulnerability. So instead of assuming that everything behind the corporate firewall is safe, the zero trust model assumes a breach has already occurred, so it must now verify each and every request to be certain it's a trusted entity. Now, zero trust not only applies to user accounts and networks, but is applied across five pillars. The first pillar is the user. Second is the device they're using, the applications they use, the data and the network. So yeah, sure, segmentation plays its part in limiting how far an attack can spread. But that's just one piece of a much larger and intricate puzzle. When we talk about zero trust, we're really discussing a comprehensive strategy that covers everything from how users access the network, how data is encrypted and how it's transported. It's about making security as granular as possible and not taking anything for granted. I'll include links in the show notes, but I want to leave you with two zero trust frameworks. The first, which contains the five pillars I just mentioned, is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, Zero Trust Maturity Model. 
If you're new to Zero Trust and want to apply this to your organisation, no matter how large or small, this is where I would start. I often refer to this as the navigational map to Zero Trust. Then the other one is the Zero Trust Architecture document by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. This goes into a lot of detail, even on Zero Trust and the NIST privacy framework. And that is the essence of Zero Trust, a complete mind shift in how we approach security in an inherently insecure digital world. I hope you found this Friday Field Notes episode useful. I'll be doing these at least every other Friday and share war stories, successes, failures and lessons learned from the field. Have a great weekend, everyone.